I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing Brett Baer, chief political anchor for Fox News, about his newest best-selling presidential history book, To Rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union, and The Crisis of 1876, which came out October 12, 2021, and we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on October 22, 2021. Enjoy. Now, Brett... Your, your first chapter, you talk about how the 1876 election had many similarities to 2020. Your last chapter talks about Grant's statue being pulled down after the George Floyd murder, and yet, obviously, both of those things happened after you had started working on this book. So, so what was it that inspired you? I mean, all these timely events happening kind of good fortune to help promote the book. But, yeah. but what was it that inspired you to want to write a book about Ulysses Grant? Right. So you remember we've been, I came here before for the three other books, uh, Three Days in January about Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, Three Days in Moscow about Reagan and the final negotiation with Gorbachev in Moscow, and Three Days at the Brink about FDR, Churchill, and Stalin during World War II meeting in Tehran. And those moments um, when I first found them, uh, I thought were overlooked in some way, shape, or form uh, in history. And in, for Eisenhower's case, it was his presidency overall and the farewell address that was kind of misunderstood. In Reagan's case, it was a speech he gave to Moscow State University uh, that was overlooked in history, but was really consequential, talking to students about communism in Moscow. Um, and... In the Tehran conference case, it was overshadowed by Yalta, and actually the Tehran conference is where the three leaders come up with D-Day and the final part of the war. So after I finished that, the beginning, middle, and end of the Cold War, I decided I wanted to find another three days construct, but outside of the three days. And so I was looking for that and kind of stumbled into Grant. I was talking to somebody about the Civil War and... You know, they talked about Grant as a general and the military strategy and strategy, uh, the George Bush uh, strategy <laughs> is what I'm caught on. Um, we like Bush around here, I know, so it's so okay. I thought I'd throw it in there. Um, <laughs> the military strategy, and but there's not a lot about his presidency. And whenever you think about uh, Grant's presidency, it's always painted with a broad brush that he was drunk all the time, and it was full of corruption and scandal. And you don't really think about anything that came from Grant's presidency. Looking back at it, and this what this book does, I think, is it was really consequential, really consequential. And he essentially was taking the Lincoln vision of trying to win the peace after the Civil War and keep the country together. He pushed through and fought for the 14th and 15th Amendments, uh, giving black citizenship and the right to vote. He fought the KKK in the South with federal troops. And in the climax of this book, it's the end of his presidency and a uh, contested election where the country is literally teetering on going back to a second civil war. And it's Grant's 
grand bargain that keeps it together. So that's what I fell in love with. And you're right. I was writing the book and almost done with the book when January 6th happened. Um, So anchoring that day, I kind of had a realization that that moment on Capitol Hill was as dark as it had been in 1876, but much different. And it gave me a perspective that the country's been through a lot before. Well, I always am interested in, in who uh, books are dedicated to. And, and Brett, your, your book is dedicated, quote, to all those who try every day to bring the country together in tense and partisan times. Those efforts, like grants, will hopefully lay the groundwork for a bright future for generations to come. So I read that. I asked myself, Of course, you know better than anybody. Is there a single politician in Washington, D.C. today who's trying to bring the country together? That's who you want. That's who we all want. Is anybody doing that? I mean, it's a great question. I think there are a few politicians that are trying uh, to do that. I think right now in the center focus is Joe Manchin, uh, who is doing a pretty good job of articulating what he's against and what he's for. And he is, uh, you know, not a Republican, but he is uh, trying to bring the sides together to get something done. Uh, The problem is, is that uh, Washington is broken and it's just really, really broken and covering it every day. uh, You know, there are a lot of things that these politicians do agree on, but because it's so partisan, they go to their corners and use those things as leverage against each other. And uh, Eisenhower said, as a country and as politicians, we should first try to solve the things we agree on and then fight about the things we don't. It's, there's not a lot of people uh, trying, and we could use a grant uh, pretty soon. Well, a lot of people would say that one of the reasons Washington is broken has something to do with the media. So not including yourself, is there a national journalist who you believe is trying to bring this country back together, seeing both sides? Is there anybody who stands out in meeting uh, the idea that you dedicated this book to? Yeah, I mean, there's a few of my colleagues that, uh, that, that do that. Um, John Carl comes to mind from ABC, who is trying to be fair. Um, but... I think some of my colleagues who uh, used to be in the same position as I am or was covering the Pentagon and the White House um, got emotional about the Trump administration somehow and lost some of the balance that they once had. Uh, And I'm trying every day to take the emotion out of it. I have feelings about things. I want to, you know, I have thoughts about things, but I'd like to present it in a way where you, you have all sides, and then you decide how you think about it. That's literally not just a slogan. That's what I'm trying to do from 6 to 7 Eastern time. And um, so there's not many, Talmadge, and more and more uh, cable networks especially seem to be tilting one way. And from my perspective, go for it, because if you build it, they will come. And Britt Hume, when I took over for him in January 2009, said two things. One, the show is not about you. And two, the news drives the show. And that's what we've been trying to do. Well, that's why you're our favorite newscaster. So keep it up. And I hope you inspire others to do that as well. 
Now, as you mentioned, Brett, this is your fourth book about an American president at a defining moment in history. And you say in your introduction, quote, presidents long dead are not relics to observe from a distance, but they are ever present in the lives of Americans, close quote. So at what age and under what circumstances did the relevance of presidential history take hold of you? Mm. Great question. I did not study history in college. I was political science and English, but I wish that I had because what the Eisenhower experience taught me was that I knew a lot about a lot, but I didn't know, for example, Eisenhower's presidency. I knew Eisenhower as a general. And discovering and kind of unlocking some of that opened up another door about where we are in, in current times. So in each book, I, I kind of try to find uh, something that is relevant to today. And every time that we went down those roads, there was something significantly relative to today. Um, and each leader had something to offer, which is why at the end of the book, when um, I am watching live after the George Floyd murder and the protests that come after it, this statue in San Francisco in a park of Grant being torn down and a live report from a reporter talking to the people saying, why are you doing this? And they're saying, well, because he's part of the Civil War, he had a slave, and we got to move on from that. And it just made me so mad because here Grant had been given a slave from his father-in-law. He let the man free soon thereafter and spent his entire life fighting slavery, fighting for equality, fighting to continue Lincoln's vision of the country. And the fact that they didn't understand that, but more importantly, that, that America didn't remember that um, made me that much more uh, certain that by looking at history, we can really affect our future. Mm -hmm. Now, the title of your book is To Rescue the Republic. You point out that's something Ulysses Grant did not once but twice, leading the Union to victory in the Civil War and then bringing a satisfactory conclusion to the 1876 election, which threatened to start another war. So let's take it one at a time. Speculate. If Grant had not been chosen to lead the Union Army in March of 1864, how do you think that would have impacted the Civil War's outcome? I think it would have had a tremendous impact. Uh, some of those battles, um, the generals who were under Grant wanted to retreat. They wanted to uh, move on. For example, in Shiloh, um, there's a, a great scene in the book, and, and it's basically from Grant's words. Remember that Grant wrote his memoir, which was really eloquent, and I commend you to read it after you read this book. Um, <laughs> but it's really, really eloquent, and that's why we have such first-person knowledge of conversations. And uh, Sherman also wrote a book in which he reflected on this moment. Anyway, Shiloh, uh, they, it's raining. It is horrific. The field is full of dead uh, soldiers. The Union has taken it on the chin. The Confederates have surprised them. The uh, fields are running red with blood. Uh, and Sherman is walking up to Grant, who's under a tree and the drizzling, and he's sitting on this, this uh, little chair, and he's whittling, actually. And Sherman is ready to go up and say, it's time to retreat. It's time to pull back. And he sees 
Grant's determination and his stare into the wilderness, and he says, well, we had a devil of a time, didn't we, General? And Grant looks at him and says, yep, but we'll lick him tomorrow. And Grant had this almost military savant uh, attitude of, of a strategy that Sherman knew that he should not say we should retreat. The next day they did have a plan and they went on to win Shiloh and it changed the outcome of the war. So my point is, is that Grant for that time, for that moment was the guy and Lincoln knew that. So I think it would have changed the outcome of the war. You know, one of your comments, you hear a lot about how Grant was actually badly misrepresented in terms of how often he, he would get intoxicated. And somebody who didn't like Grant because they were jealous of him went to Lincoln and said, oh, you know, Grant's getting drunk. And Lincoln said, find out what kind of whiskey he drinks because I want to send that to every general I've got. <laughs> Barrels of it to every general. <laughs> so let's go to the second time he rescued the Republic. And that's really kind of the focus here. But if Grant had not been, you know, he served two terms. His second term ended in 1876. That's when it was the November 1876 election. In those days, presidents didn't get inaugurated until March of the following year. So during that time from the election in 1876 until March, which is what this book is about in, in large part, the last third. But, Brett, what's the most likely scenario of, of what would have happened had Grant not stepped up and found a way to help make a deal to keep things on track? Well, the most likely scenario is that the country would have split again and the Confederacy would have tried to rise up again and the white militias that were already fighting in the South would see that as a, a call to action and, um, and it would have fallen apart. Grant knew that we were teetering and which is why he thought that he had to get involved. The election was between Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican, and Samuel Tilden, the Democrat. Uh, it was a very tight election, and uh, there were three states that sent up two sets of electors, uh, Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana. And they said there was not a determination. And um, there were all kinds of allegations of, of voter suppression, blacks being uh, kept from the polls, and Grant said he wanted to stay out of it because he, he obviously wanted Rutherford B. Hayes to continue as a Republican. But if he felt like he was putting his hand on the scale and everybody thought it was illegitimate, then the whole thing would fall apart. So he stayed out of it for a couple of weeks, but then violence starts bubbling up all over the country, including threats to the Capitol. And uh, it's bedlam in the House. And people are standing on tables saying, Tilden or blood, and they're they're yelling inside the House floor. Um, so Grant decides that he is going to start making this negotiation behind the scenes. And you talk about a smoke-filled room in Washington at the Wormley Hotel. They get everybody together and they start hammering out what could possibly be the solution here. There's this shadowy figure in this process, Edward Burke, who is... Uh, an associate of the guy, the Democrat, who's running against the Republican for governor in Louisiana. And those races are contested as well. So part of the deal that he tries to make is to say, okay, listen, you give the governorship in South Carolina and Louisiana to the Democrat. You pull federal troops out of the South. The South pledges to be a part of the union and 
it pledges to honor uh, the equality and the rights of Southern blacks. And in return, everything stays together and Rutherford B. Hayes becomes the president of the United States. Now, they set up this election commission, they go through that, and that's the deal that's done. There's a lot of questions about, you know, the repercussions of that and what it means down the road for the years later and Jim Crow in the South and, and the civil rights strife that we saw years later. And I think, you know, that Hamilton line in the, in the musical, it matters who's writes your history. Um, I think a lot of the negativity from that moment fell then to Grant and it was easy to do. And it was easy to paint him with a broad brush saying he was drunk and he was corrupt and all of this problem is due to Grant. But in reality, he's thinking they've made a promise. They've made a pledge. Now, if Reagan, if Reagan was there, he would say, trust but verify. But um, he trusted. And that was Grant's problem a lot of times. Uh, he believed that not only would they keep their pledge to, to honor what they said about uh, Southern blacks, but also that leaders after him would take up the torch uh, that he was, he was doing and Lincoln was doing. Well, the Civil War, uh, going back to uh, you know, Lincoln's president, uh, it, it, the Civil War ended in April 1865. One week later, uh, Lincoln was killed. And from then until the end of Grant's presidency in March of 1877, that's a period of 12 years, you say Grant, quote, made it his mission to heal the breach and bring the nation together, north and south, black and white, close quote. So would it be accurate to say that Grant was doing his best to emulate what Abraham Lincoln would have done had he not been killed? 100%. He truly believed in Lincoln's vision, how he was going about it, what he wanted to do. They had talked about it. And, you know, just an interesting aside, this process that I have gone through now, this is the fourth time. I have a great researcher. Uh, her name is Sydney Soderberg, and she is a former mayor of Salina, Kansas, which is the town next to Abilene. And I went to the Eisenhower Library, and I, I said, fine, I need the best researcher to figure out how I'm going to do this. And they said, Sydney's your person. So I met her. I think I've told this story here before, but she said, um, listen, I, I just need to tell you, I watch your show. And I said, thank you. I, that's great. And she said, I really like your show. And I said, that's even better. <laughs> um, she said, but I need you to know that I am a true blue Kansas Democrat. And I said, that's great. I'm a newsman who likes history and needs some help. And uh, she said, let's do it. So her ability to dig up these nuggets in the National Archives that uh, either are unfound or overlooked has been truly amazing. And then with my co-author, Catherine Whitney, we stitched these nuggets in kind of a quilt and we spend a lot of time bouncing back and forth until we get the blueprint that we think is accurate of the time, but in a narrative form, so it's very readable. All right, so that's just the aside. The, one of the nuggets was that Grant, um, the Grants, were invited by President Lincoln and Mary Todd Lincoln to Ford Theater the night of the assassination. And they invited the Grants. There was a little um, animosity. Julia Grant did not love Mary Todd Lincoln. Not many women did. She was not apparently a very nice 
woman to be around, but that's inside. Um, but the Grants said no. They sent regrets. They had to go to uh, see their kids in New Jersey. So they're going uh, to in a carriage ride from Washington, starting to go up to the train station. And Grant describes this ominous figure on horseback riding along the carriage, staring at Grant and in an angry kind of way. And he notes it. That night, obviously, uh, Lincoln is assassinated. Word gets to the Grants by the time they're in New Jersey. And Grant is bereft with, uh, with guilt. He feels like if he had been in Ford Theater, that he would have prevented this assassination. But he also thinks that the person who was riding alongside the carriage was John Wilkes Booth, uh, and that perhaps he was a target as well. If Lincoln is not assassinated, and Johnson does not become president. That's the biggest what if, because this country would be a totally different place. Johnson is arguably the worst president that we've had, definitely the most racist, and is taking Lincoln's vision going backwards. And Grant then finds his moment to stand up to Johnson multiple times during that presidency, and then when he takes over, it's his mission to get it back on track to Lincoln's vision. Now, one of Grant's greatest traits that you point out in this book was his ability to stay calm in a crisis. That was true whether he's in a battlefield with bullets whizzing all around him or whether the country's about to embark on a second war because of the 1876 election. He was almost superhuman level of calm. So, Brett, what's your best guess on where that rare leadership trait, uh, how, how did that come to Grant, to be able to have that mindset in the highest battle pressure, the highest political pressure. Where do you think that came from? Bless you. Um, really good whiskey? No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. Liquid um, courage? <laughs> yeah, yeah, liquid courage, no. I actually think, and his um, aide uh, during the war, uh, Bedos, wrote that he thought because Grant was came from a poor beginning and also went downhill uh, to really the depths um, to the point where he was selling firewood in Galena, Illinois, uh, at one point to make ends meet, that Badeau wrote that he thought that that gave Grant this appreciation of you can get through anything. From that moment of selling firewood, three years later, he would go on to be the commander of Union forces. And, um, you know, so it gave him this perspective. And, you know, I was thinking back to all of the books and each one of those leaders had this crucible that they had to go through. Um, for Eisenhower, he was really abject poverty. He was not, it was a very poor family. Uh, for Reagan, he had an alcoholic father. Uh, for FDR, he came from wealth and posh surroundings, but then had polio and had to fight through polio and how to deal with that and how to try to walk or, or do anything, really. And so each one had some thing to go through and Grant's thing was pretty big as far as what he had to do to get to success. And that's where a lot of people thought that steely resolve came from. Mm -hmm. Now, you've mentioned William Tecumseh Sherman, who was one of the top generals under Grant and was also one of Grant's closest friends uh, for his life. But you quote Sherman, who said, quote, to me, one of his closest friends, Grant is a mystery. And I believe he's a mystery to himself. So do you agree, all the research you've done, do you agree with Sherman's assessment of not only 
Grant's being mysterious to others, but even a mystery to himself. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, he was trying to find himself for a long time, and then then he had this mission, uh, and then he leaves the presidency, and he is really concerned because he doesn't have the next thing. And I know, you know, people facing retirement, some of them look uh, like, what's my next thing? And maybe it's the golf course. But his was really, it was driving him, and he didn't know what to do. So he, trustingly, and he trusted a lot of people, and that was part of his non-politician naivete, um, and people took advantage of him in his administration. And then after, in the post-presidency, hard to believe, but he invests his money, pretty much all of his money, in this investment. It makes some money at the beginning, and the bankers in the room will know this, uh, that he should have, you know, diversified a little bit. Uh, he didn't, and he lost all of his money, all of it. And he went down, and he was really concerned about making ends meet for his family. So he has to start writing articles for this uh, magazine. His friend is Mark Twain, and uh, he says, how much are you making? And he says, $500. He said, that's ridiculous. You have to make more. You're a, the union general who won the Civil War. You're a former president. So Twain says he's going to publish his memoir and sell it. And so that's the process that starts after post-presidency. And he spends all of his time writing longhand this memoir. In the middle of that, he gets throat cancer to the point where he starts going downhill very fast. They have to spray cocaine in the back of his mouth because he can't swallow. And he is losing weight. He's in blankets. He's writing longhand his memoir, uh, which is really excellent. Mark Twain said it was fantastic writing and to the point where a lot of people thought Twain wrote it, but he didn't. And he writes his last bit of the memoir and dies a few days later. Uh, Twain publishes that. It's the biggest selling book of the time. Makes $300,000 for Julia Grant, which translates to about $14 million today's day and age. So it's kind of a love story that ends at the end. I mean, I think it speaks volumes about Grant. Twain offered him a big advance. He said, no, that wouldn't be fair to you. We don't know if this book's going to sell. We'll just do a straight royalty deal. And lo and behold, you know, it becomes the, the biggest uh, blockbuster. Now, uh, in recent years, the historians who vote in the C-SPAN presidential rankings poll Grant's had a steady rise. He used to, at one time, because people were obsessed with the uh, corruption and, uh, during his administration, he was, he was rated close to the bottom. Now at least he's in the top half. And one of the main reasons is because there's this historic appreciation for the way he treated Indians and the way he treated African Americans. So, so he had this heightened racial sensitivity like a century ahead of his time. Where do you think that came from? I mean, that's a good question. He, you know, his, his wife's family were slave owners, and he always had a problem with it. His family was abolitionist. His family was really anti-slavery. And uh, his father, in fact, was one of the biggest <coughs> anti-slavery uh, folks in, the, in that area and would make his feelings clear. So I'm sure that rubbed off on Grant. He was never as adamant as his father until... Lincoln and what he believed after he saw the war. You know, it took a while to, for Lincoln to realize that the war was really about fighting slavery. And um, once that realization 
happened, uh, the emancipation and figuring out how to unify uh, all of these freed slaves in the, in the Union was, was his driving force. Remember, under Grant, for eight years, blacks you know, started voting, and in some places were majorities, and a lot of black congressmen and senators were serving during that time. After Grant, it takes 92 years for the next African-American to make it to the U.S. Senate. And so uh, a lot, you know, was happening during that time that he was pushing the needle. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, for my last question, then we'll open into questions. You say uh, at the back end of your book, quote, in times of great national conflict, there are only two choices to stand for division or stand for peace. Grant chose peace. So what would Grant think of today's partisan divide? So I get asked that a lot, and uh, it's tough to put you know, today's um, situation in Grant's mind. He'd be like, what's Twitter? No, um, <laughs> I, I think that, uh, he would say, take 30,000 feet back and get away from the emotion of the moment and realize that on first principles, we are about standing for the Constitution of the United States. And if that's the driving force, then figure out how to get there. Um, you know, what I take away from the book overall is that we as a country have to fight for this republic. It takes constant vigilance. It takes effort. And we have to realize that we could lose it if we don't fight for it. And we have to fight for it, and, and we have to disagree, but we have to do it peacefully. And uh, that's what Grant was about. I think that sometimes we lose that in the day-to-day -day bickering and the you know, social media back and forth and where people sit. Uh, there are ways to, to disagree, but do so in a way that makes the union stronger. And uh, I think that's what... Grant was fighting for. Fantastic. Who's got a question for Brett? Anybody? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Ah, interview with Biden. Um, we ask every single week. Uh, so far, <laughs> so far, uh, he has done, I think, nine. Uh, seven of them have been with CNN. And um, at this point, Obama had done something like 50, and Trump had done something like 45, something like that. Um, so he's doing, he's not doing interviews. Uh, he did that town hall last night. There were some really interesting things said that we'll dissect today. Um, but I think eventually, uh, as we get closer to the midterms, that maybe uh, they will feel the necessity. I mean, right now, Fox is getting two to one over CNN and MSNBC combined. I'll be interested to see what the town hall ratings were last night, but I bet they're not that big because there were four big sporting events on as well as uh, Tucker Carlson. So um, I hope so. We ask all the time and um, we'll see. He's not doing a lot of medium. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question and one in which is bubbling up and it's, it's sort of the next Tea Party, I think, in that education is going to drive a lot of
the political di discourse over the next year. If you look at the Virginia governor's race currently, um, it is really up there as far as important issues in that race. We just did a poll yesterday in which uh, education and what your kids are being taught is the third thing behind concern about the inflation and uh, health care. And, and it's never been that high in recent polls. You know, it's always usually down below climate change. And uh, it was way up there. So I do think it's an issue. It's one of the reasons I really enjoy writing this is because my hope is that uh, young kids will read it in a way that's, um, you know, engaging. Uh, my best moment in this whole thing, and obviously these Dallas breakfasts are one of them, but um, the best moment is the, uh, at the Reagan Library, I was signing books and an eighth grade teacher came up and said to me that I just want you to know that I'm doing a three days class where my students are gonna read all three of the three days books and we're gonna do a three days class. And I thought, that's perfect, that's what I wanna happen. And so hopefully, you know, more of this happens and there's more of a realization of the importance of history and what that means for the future. I mean, to me, that's one of the great tragedies that all students typically have in the way of reading history are textbooks, which are typically boring, uh, sterile, uh, et cetera. And if they had, whether Brooks, uh, Brent's books or David McCullough or John Meacham or, you know, our leading historians, this is what makes history comes alive. This is what makes young people get excited about history when it's, when it's well-written and so forth. You know, I'll just say this. Um, I went on like seven billion shows talking about this, and I was, I'll be honest, I was sick of talking about it, you know, because you, you say a lot of stuff, and, and the, you know, the anchors are asking. There's only a few anchors, by the way, who actually read the book. Uh, Neil Cavuto is one of them. He's got these little tabs, and he's got the specifics he's going to ask. But I said, I want to, you know, really push this book to be success. And for a history book, to be number two on the New York Times list is really kind of a cool thing that I'm very proud of. Now, I wanted to be number one, but Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters <laughs> and Nirvana beat me out. I am never putting that on my Apple Music, ever. <laughs> okay, well, uh, Brett's gonna go back to the table. Christmas isn't far away. We've got additional copies for sale. Uh, let's say thanks to Brad for taking time from his busy schedule. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Brad Bear continues to do a great job of bringing presidential history alive. As To Rescue the Republic is his fourth New York Times bestseller in the last four and a half years. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford Bowen McKinley & Norton. Thanks for listening.